0: Welcome to another edition of Variable Deep Postulate Ensemble Projects. This is a friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drossoff, and I'll be acting as your host, as always. This weekend, for the indefinite future, this show will be coming to you from beautiful Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, as we all hunker down as the country tries to get a grip on halting this epidemic. I've got another great show for you this week. I had a wide-ranging conversation with composer, arranger, lead trumpet player, classical trumpet player, and music professor, Dr. Michael Stewart. Mike status as a college professor, prompted some great answers to questions aspiring professional musicians might ask. This is a good one, folks, so hang in there. Before we get to the show, I have to take care of the weekly business. First, to my subscribers, I apologize for the delay in getting this out there. I've been striving to get these done every Thursday and get the upload done at least sometime on Thursday, but I missed my deadline yesterday, hence the Friday release this week. When we made the decision to ride this crisis out in our secluded home up on Lake Michigan in Wisconsin, it took some adjusting to the process and the need to get a grip on our mental states and coming to grips with this challenge. Ultimately, if it drags out into August for folks charged with dealing with all of this on the front lines to be able to say that the pandemic has been staunched, well, then we'll hunker down till August. It is in the greater scheme of things a small price to pay to be part of the solution by staying out of the way, as it were. I am in a uniquely fortunate position to be able to do this. Yes, I've lost all my gigs for the near foreseeable future, certainly through the end of April, and who knows what's going to happen in May, June, and July. A family vacation has been put on hold for a year. (laughs) The vacation insurance policy that we purchased to cover problems with canceling refused to acknowledge a pandemic as a good reason for canceling our plans. You get that? (laughs) We purchased vacation insurance to deal with uh, having a To deal with a cancellation But they said well well, pandemic isn't good enough Yeah I'm sure glad I wasn't the one who had to take that call (sighs) But my wife and I are going to be okay I am deeply concerned For younger musicians and workers In the US in general who are going to Be more seriously impacted by being Out of work indefinitely without pay I realize steps are being Taken as a nation to mitigate All of this I would argue we could Do more and do it better but at least some steps are being taken. Now, one way or another, we're going to get through this. Before we move into this week's interview, it's time for my weekly shout-out to the two companies I endorse. I play wedge brass mouthpieces from bass trumpet to piccolo. These wonderful mouthpieces are designed by Dave Harrison of Gabriola Island up in British Columbia, Canada. You owe it to yourself to try one of these. If they work for you, they will set you up with a perfect fit. To find out more, go to wedgemouthpiece.com. I also play Gets and Trumpets from bass trumpet to piccolo. These are wonderful, professional quality horns, and they are very favorably priced for the quality. They also have the best valves in the business, lifetime guarantees. Finally, they're made in the USA, right in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, from the valve block to the bell. If you want to find out more about these, just go to Getson.com or contact your local music store. On a sad note, I got an email from Chicago band leader Brian Paddy just before I went to bed last night informing me that the wonderful trumpeter, jazz player, composer, and arranger Bob Ojeda passed away yesterday. I played lead for Bob on a band he co-led with bass trombone player Paul Martin the Starfall Big Band. Bob's charts were just wonderful, easy to play, and easily on a par with the work of Lenny Niehaus, and I told Bob that many times. I considered it a great honor that he liked my playing. His stories were fantastic and interesting. He was, in my humble opinion, a consummate, seasoned professional musician. I feel I'm a better musician for having worked with him, and he'll be missed but his music lives on. Now on to this week's show. I want to do one more plug for the show. As we are all sheltering in place, we can listen to more shows online. If you're a student or a music educator, I would urge you to go back and listen to the archived episodes of this program. They're all there. You can hear from professional musicians from all walks of life telling their stories of adaptation and survival. Take notes. You can pick up ideas for yourself as you develop your own career. Okay, one quick technical point. Most of my interviews are conducted with Skype. There is a latency delay as a rule, but it's a bit worse as a result of my satellite connection up in Sturgeon Bay, and there were reported bandwidth issues as a result of a more recently heavily traveled internet. So as a result, uh, there's a few little glitches with Mike and I talking over each other. But uh, it's still a great conversation. Okay, as mentioned at the top, my guest today is Doctor Mike Stewart. Before we get to our conversation, let's hear Mike play a little bit. Here's a lovely big band chart from the Count Basie Library, written for Snooky Young, "Pensive Miss," as performed by Doctor Mike Stewart with the Shout Section Big Band on their last CD. <laughs> Well, folks, I'm on uh, line here uh, just during this uh, crazy hard times with everybody being locked into their homes and everyone on the Internet. Uh, I'm on line here via Skype talking to Dr. Michael Stewart, trumpeter, composer, uh, arranger, educator, and all that stuff. Uh, And, Mike, thanks for joining me today.
1: My pleasure, Nick. Hope things are going well for you. Uh, My current status is good. Uh, everybody's healthy that's good i've got plenty of stuff for the bathroom if you know what i'm talking about and uh all my classes are <laughs> online and going pretty well so far
0: yeah this is uh, unprecedented and the um uh it's, it's just kind of nuts um uh yeah we recently just did this crazy project for the shout six and big band that may be the way of things to, the way things are going for a while huh
1: uh, i think you're right I, I think also first off thanks for putting that together uh, John Dorhauer did the chart and the band leader, Brett Dean got everybody involved, but you were the one that actually did all the physical, physical, the electronic, uh, placement of everybody's part with one another. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. I've, <laughs> I can't even begin to add up the number of hours I spent and I had to try to make it sound like we were all in the room at the same time when everybody was hunkered down in their homes all over the area.
1: Yeah. And I think it came out pretty well. Is it a perfect recording? No, but you know, overall it's very good. And, uh, Again,
0: thanks. Labor of love. I'm just, I'm just so glad to see us all getting out there and putting something like this together. And, and I had to, admit, it was quite a learning experience for me. I had to learn how to use quite a few plugins uh, that I never use, <laughs> but the, they are amazing tools now that I know how to do that. Mike, I want to talk about you. and That's what this is really all about today. Uh, you're a trumpet player and most of us who are in these uh, uh, podcasts that I do are professional musicians and professional educators. I want to get a little background before we get into your specific kind of pet topics. What prompted you to consider music as a way of life, as a career, something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life?
1: Uh, That was actually kind of a this-is-the-moment kind of deal. Probably not quite this, but I've got a very definite starting point in that... uh, I, I had been playing trumpet for about a year. I started late, relatively speaking. I didn't start until I was in uh, eighth grade, and uh, I went to my oh. went to the what was the local band director, who was all, local local junior high band director, which was also he was also a trumpet player, and my first teacher. And uh, about six months into the to the school year, he brought in some recordings. We had band first period in the morning, and so before school started, he put on the Kenton arrangement of. And then he put on Maynard's, uh, uh. and then he put on Maynard's conquistador and uh, that was kind of it. <laughs> I said, "Oh, I said, you know, that that is really, <laughs> really awesome, and uh, I want to be able to do that." Now I'm not sure I really, you know, said this is music is the way at that point because I always wanted to be the next Jacques Cousteau, which didn't happen. Uh, huh. But but that is that that's that was like kind of a watershed moment where things changed right then and there.
0: Interesting. Was there, uh, so I gather uh, Maynard Ferguson was kind of the influence that, that triggered you to pick up trumpet and really get serious about it?
1: Yeah, I think you have to say that. And, uh, and, and serious is like, well, you know, what, what is serious? is certainly my interest was greater after hearing Maynard play and hearing, uh, like, you know, that Kenton chart on clowns with John Harner doing his thing. Uh, that, that, that was definitely the focus of what that, that became my focus. I, I wanted to be a high note player. I always had pretty good chops. I mean recording uh, again that same band director uh, years ago, I played at their high school jazz festival as a guest artist, and he told a story to the audience that I wasn't aware of. He said that I came to him when I was you know in eighth grade, which was late, and I said, I wanted to play trumpet. I, two, two of my friends of mine had also already played trumpet, so I guess that's why I picked it. And he's like, well, okay, okay, we'll see what's going on. And I went to my lesson, and he, and he says, the first note I played for him was a high C. And he says, oh, well, we can work with that. Um, so that, that's how that <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's what he says. If that's true, okay. I Man, I, I've always been able to play. I can always play taps, like, from day one. I'm sure it didn't sound uh-huh. really good, but I've always been able to physically do that.
0: Tell me about your education, Mike. Uh, where did you study? Uh, bachelor's degree, master's? And a doctorate, because you know, it is a Dr. Michael Stewart.
1: It is. Uh, I started, my undergraduate as at the University of Akron in Ohio. It's, it's uh, you know, 20, 30 miles southeast of Cleveland. And I did a bachelor's in jazz studies, although even then it was more of a lead trumpet thing. I mean, I worked and studied on jazz and learning how to improvise, etc. But playing lead is always what I wanted to do. When I went for a master's, uh, I went where people paid me to go. And I got an offer for a full ride plus uh, stipend to Eastern Illinois University to play lead trumpet for them and to be a jazz TA. Uh, I then spent what, a year. What town is that in? Oh, I'm sorry. It's in it's in Charleston, Illinois. It's an hour south of Champaign Urbana, okay. where the University of Illinois is. Uh, I finished there yeah. and and got a call from the U of I, uh, University of Illinois, and I went there and taught for a year. Uh, teaching freshmen oral skills and sight, screen, uh, sight screaming, screaming, and theory for freshmen. Uh, and during that time, my parents had moved to South sight Carolina. Sight screaming, sight screaming, yeah, oral skills.
0: <laughs> cool.
1: So I was, I was, visit- like I was visiting my parents who had moved to South Carolina. In the m- meantime, and I visited them there. And in the meantime, I took a trip down to Columbia, South Carolina, to the University of South Carolina, and said, you know, I'm looking for you know a couple of years to come down here to do a doctorate in composition. And uh, they made me an offer. So I ah. of finishing at U of I, I just went down to South Carolina and did my doctorate in composition down there. Um, so I went from jazz studies to trumpet performance to composition. And you think, well, why, why is that? Because, well, I wanted to be a good jazz band arranger. I wanted to write jazz charts. So I started taking comp lessons when I was at Eastern yeah. and realized, wow, I really dig that too. And so that's why I ended up doing the composition route. And I thought, you know, if I get out of here and I want to do teaching... I thought the idea would be you should be a well-rounded person. You should have the ability to teach theory and trumpet yeah. and lead a band, et cetera. And I thought that was the way to go. And I think in some regards that's a good idea. But I also think, well, you know, some schools really want you to be just focused on one thing and be really great at that one thing. And I can understand both points of view.
0: You are currently a professor where?
1: I teach for the College of DuPage. It's a community college. I teach, again, theory and sight screaming there, as well as occasionally some uh, music appreciation, which is, you know, you know music history for non-majors. And I teach at St. Xavier University in Oak Lawn, which is south southern suburb of Chicago. And I'm teaching all four levels of theory there and a form and analysis class for them.
0: Now, when you first came to Chicago, uh, how did you go about again on the kind of backpedal a little bit a lot of our listeners are perhaps musicians in college or you know just anywhere considering the possibility of getting into music as a career in some way how did well, you go this, about uh, making inroads in chicago
1: well this might be a little outdated cuz this was I moved to chicago in the very early part of 1996 so this is internet relative infancy still then, Meaning, mean, I had email, but you know, I was just uh-huh. starting, we were we were just starting to see TV commercials were like GMC and you see www.gmc.com and you go, Ooh, they're online. They got a website. And it was, you know, that was a new thing. <laughs> um, and and yeah. it was, it, I mean, you notice that kind of thing. Now it's, you know, it just assumed there's www.gmc.com. Every, everybody, you know, that's, that's the way it is. So that, that wasn't really part of the show then at least not for me so when i moved here i found a few folks i don't remember how this happened but that i got some names and then i started writing letters say hey i'm mike stewart i'm new in town i've done this i played with this person this is what i did in college if you're looking for somebody to fill out a section or whatever you know give me a call at xxx and uh Mm -hmm. actually fairly soon i you know i got some calls with some with some smallish not big name big bands and started playing with them regularly, but I also started playing as a regular sub with everybody at Fitzgerald's in Berwyn, which is one of the, if not now, the still uh, biggest supporters of live music in the Chicago area, especially big bands. Having big bands there five, yeah. six, five, six times a month, every Sunday night and a couple of Wednesdays, at least that's what it was at the time, I think. And, uh, you know, when you start playing and people start hearing you and if you don't do anything too stupid and you're not an idiot on the stand, then you get more calls. Uh, And and that's (laughs) in in terms of live playing. That's that's how it started. I also uh, joined the Chicago Brass Choir at the time, which led to some other stuff. So getting into small local groups that weren't necessarily high profile, but gets you known by people, gets your name out there and your reputation. And hopefully you build from there.
0: Did you do the jam session route at all?
1: I do not. Uh, as I as I've said, you know, I, I primarily want, have always wanted to be a lead player. And while I can improvise and read changes relatively well, um, I that is not certainly not my forte. Um, no one's, if you want, if you want to hire me to play some dinner jazz and you want to play all the things you are and stuff like satin and doll and stuff like that, not a problem. If you want me to come out and do a Clifford Brown set, I'm gonna I'm gonna fold. You know, it's just you, <laughs> know, you, you study the things you want to do, and, and everybody has their skill set. Yeah, and my yeah. my improvisational skill set is not great. Um, it's something I enjoy doing, but that it's never sounds something really that, good to me. Yeah, it's never it's never something I've had a real strong desire to be. I don't I don't say I want to be a great jazz soloist. That's not my focus. I want to be able to do it and not stink. Yeah, but uh, I'm not worried about uh, setting the world on fire with it. Either.
0: Now you mentioned the Chicago Brass Choir. Didn't you end up conducting that as memory serves, or am I not thinking about that correctly? Your,
1: your memory is correct. Uh, I started playing with that group in 96, and uh, Roger Rocco, who was a tubist formerly with the San Francisco Symphony, uh, right. I believe, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe it was the Hawaii Symphonies, or maybe both. Anyway, he was directing at the time. Okay. And uh, we were doing some recording with him, and maybe a year later, he stopped doing that and i took it over so i was the the conductor/music music director from late 1997 till 2001 and uh, we released a cd of mine the folks that i'd put together in in the interim in, in the interim between when he quit and i started and then we put out another cd while i was the music director and a highlight of our tenure, or my tenure there, would have been we performed uh, a concert at the International Trumpet Guild Conference in 2000 at the uh, oh Indiana State. Oh no, no, uh, the one in Evansville, whichever University of Indiana that is in Evansville. I can't remember which one it was. It was the University of Evansville. That sounds right. Anyway, we 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 had a uh, dedicated yeah. concert at the at that school.
0: Okay. Cool. I remember the CD coming out and being promoted in the ICG. That was a really yeah, cool had, sounding product. Great.
1: We, group had, group. we had John Hagstrom, the uh, I think second trump player of Chicago at the, Chicago Symphony at the time. He performed two solo works on there: the Bellini Concerto, which was an oboe concerto that I arranged for him and the group, and we did an arrangement wow. of the Soxa Concertino in E flat. Which I did not do the arrangement of. I did I did most the arrangements on that recording, but not that one.
0: You you in the big band scene at Fitzgeralds. Uh, as I recall, you wrote a book about uh, the bands at the Fitzgeralds. Can you tell us about that a little bit, please?
1: Not quite a book, although you know, I, I produced I produced a two disc DVD that's entitled
0: Ah, oh, my bad. Okay,
1: not, not a problem. It's, it's entitled The Jazz Bands of Fitzgeralds, and it's. It's a series of interviews primarily that I interviewed each of the six band directors who had had or still do in some some cases a longtime residency at Fitzgerald's, the, the regular Sunday night groups. Um, and I and I have mm-hmm. 20 to 30 minute interviews with each of those directors, um, collections of photos that, w- that either I took or that other people um, passed along to me. For, for use in it. I have anecdotes from players that performed there. Uh, interview with Bill Fitzgerald, the owner of, of the uh,
2: establishment. Ah.
1: And and one with uh, an interview with Lee King who, if you don't know, who is not a musician, but Lee has been the doorman at Fitzgerald's for you know 700 years. Uh, yeah, Since its inception. Extremely nice <laughs> man. And he, he was one of my first interviews. It was very pleasant. It was, it was kind of neat to get his his perspective on things and little, little tales that he had. So, you know, it, it was something that I thought was important because the age of a number of the, the directors was getting up there. Um, two of them mm-hmm. who have long, who have retired John Burnett and Lenny King, Lenny moved to Arizona. I had to fly to Arizona to interview Lenny, which was very pleasant. We played golf yeah. and, had and did our interview. Um, and then two, <laughs> two, and then two other guys who were younger, but have left Rob Parton, and uh, Jen oh, and yeah. Jeff Lindbergh have moved to Ohio to teach at Capital University and uh, University College of Worcester, respectively. So they don't live here anymore. So I, I had to go see them as well. But I wanted to get their stories before they were gone, because I thought that was kind of an important history of what's been going on in, in the Chicago area. It certainly has, is, is very well known. And uh, as I know you know, that Fitzgerald's has finally been sold. After a couple of years yep. effort, and so what its future is going to be, we don't really know. Especially since right now nobody's performing there.
0: Oh, uh, uh, this is couldn't that you know the guy taking over for Stroess right now? Uh, what a shame! Couldn't have happened at the worst time, but I do hope he continues. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, we'll see. But you, you, you know, he he seems like he wants to continue at least some of those traditions. But economic pressures will lead you to do what you need to do. So we really don't know what's going to happen. So I I think the timing of that disc, yeah. I did it in 2013, which is a little while ago, but there haven't been many changes really to Fitzgerald since that time in terms of what the bands do or who the bands are. Yeah. But, but I think it probably came, came at just the right time.
0: I think Bill Bryant took over the John Burnett library, did he not?
1: You were correct. Oh yeah,
0: you know, I blurted that out like everybody. Bill Bryant is uh, possibly <laughs> one of the busiest big band uh, drummers in Chicago. Uh, he, he turns up everywhere so yeah he hes he, he dials it right in um mike what big bands do you currently play with
1: well the primary band that I play with is the shout section big band which you uh, are now uh, again yeah. which you are now again a member of you and I you started a little before I did I joined yeah uh,
0: thanks for welcoming me.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. It's gonna, it's we're, it's gonna be good. You know, this this is a it's kind of a cool band. It started out, you know, as a bunch of semi-pros and teachers that were gathered together by Brett Dean. And frankly, when it started, it was a pretty mediocre band. Uh, I think over the last decade, though, you know, the per- personnel has rounded out and switched around. That some of those same guys are still there because they play really well, and the ones that didn't play as well have kind of went by the wayside. Um, and it's a pretty darn good group. And we play a lot of really interesting music. Um, we play sure. some standard, standard tunes, but not, but in newer arrangements. And there are a couple guys in the band, primarily John Doerhauer, who are extremely creative and have really unique spins on the music.
0: I'm intrigued by his out of the box thinking. Uh, you know what I mean?
1: Very much so. John is definitely uh, looking at things from the side kind of guy. He doesn't look straight on. He says, what if I came around this way and tried this angle? Uh, as I said, very creative, uh, very accessible guy. His music, if you've, I know you've, you've sat in. and John also has his own big band. I know you've sat in, I've played with him maybe seven or eight times yeah, over eight, the past couple, couple of years. And, uh, you know, when you do music that ranges from Jimi Hendrix's, uh, little wing to his, you know, his thing on American patrol, which is ridiculous, and then some of his original compositions, which have very little to do with jazz, except that it's a jazz band, but there's you know, that's the only tie to jazz that it has. Um, it makes for a really enjoyable time and often a very really challenging
0: time. I like Brett's out of the box thinking about a vision for a big band. I mean, he is uh, I think one of the things that's made that a successful group is the fact that he is completely uh you know uh, just uh, unbridled and what he will try. Like this crazy thing we did with the cell phone videos and putting together a big band arrangement.
1: Yeah. From cell so phone you said videos.
0: Bre- so people are talking about
1: Brett Dean with Shout Section, correct?
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Brett Dean, the leader of the Shout Section
1: band. Got
0: it. You do play with other big bands around town, do you not?
1: I do. I play a little less with that stuff right now. One, because Shout Section is wonderfully pretty busy. Um, but I still will sub on yeah. uh, with Bill O'Connell's Chicago Skyliners big band. Uh, Dana Leggs' band I play mm-hmm. regularly with. When he whenever he has something, he calls me. I play lead for him. And you know, then there's just That's the occasional great. occasional big band job. I mean, there's still lots of of small bands. I remember when I first started and how I met you was playing on. Oh shoot, the clarinet player, the older guy who we first time hey, I played. Hey better yes eddie barrett eddie I mean, Barrett. Th- th- there are still yeah. you know quite a few big bands like that that uh primarily exist and playing older tunes and you know they're not necessarily very well known but they're again they're a great place for especially if you're starting out to get involved with uh another band that i play with occasionally a sub on uh, lead chair with is joel bear b-a-e-r his uh oh, yeah. his yeah. his uh, blue shift big band which is out in the western suburbs again plays a lot of new music um his band is populated with a lot of uh, younger college guys or just out of college guys and folks that live out in the southwest again another very unique experience but another a really good group oh, yeah. too we did a basie album concert where we did there, there's a basie album that's all bill holman charts, and we uh-huh. the concert was that uh-huh. album oh yeah We played the album In the Order of the Album.
0: Those Bill Holman, especially those Bill Holman lead parts, they can be a bit of a a blow.
1: They are. He he still likes, uh, he used to like the uh, repeated shout section thing. And (laughs) I I, I tell everyone, (laughs) I I, I am not by and large a Bill Holman fan, partly because of stuff like that. Um, But some of my favorite charts ever, uh, especially two Kenton charts, Yesterday's, that ballad and uh oh, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. malaga I, I i love to death both of those charts they're bill holman things but by and large i'm not a bill holman thing.
0: uh music as a career as a business uh sure you, you do teach um, you know, in our pre um uh interview <laughs> uh exchanges i gather that you kind of had a little bit of a reality check uh, mentality that you'd like to get into and discuss a little bit um uh so uh, one of the things that I often ask, and we can maybe divert this into uh, the thinking you want to cover, is uh, what are the recommended skill sets that you would suggest for young musicians to develop as they're trying to go into the business? Uh, maybe expand on that a little bit, if you would, please, as to what uh, what do you think of as the... Uh, uh, you know, possibilities and pitfalls of doing this as a career
1: okay like well, there are two different things you're talking about like you should we do this as a career or what should you do with this as a career and how yeah. to prepare and how to prepare for that career um so l- let me tackle the first one the uh, whatever
0: <laughs> hits you in the conversation go yeah, ahead
1: that's fine well, so should you do this as a career obviously i don't have the answer <laughs> for every for for everybody but i might say you know the fact that you're asking me that question means you don't know and in a very practical sense that tells me your answer should be no but you know if you know you want to be a musician and you you know if you're somebody who sits around and plays three four hours a day even when you're younger well that's probably what you should do because that's what you really really want to do and that's different than and and i will throw myself and i will throw myself in this boat immediately that's different than somebody who likes to play and likes to do some of the things that happens with that but that, you know those really are two different things. Someone who just needs to be a musician that just does it all the time because that's what they do, versus somebody—and again, this is me yeah. this is somebody who enjoys doing it a lot, even, but doesn't necessarily know yeah. what goes into it. And maybe the fact that you aren't doing it a ton of time already—that should maybe that should be your answer because you know these days, you know, one—it's not as Lucrative, uh, not lucrative. Certainly not lucrative. But the the options for you to do this are certainly dwindling over time. I mean, every time I've heard you talk with somebody else, you talk about, oh, well, in the '70s it was this, and then it started getting less in the '80s and synthesizers, and boom, and now you can only do this. Well, that that's the way it is. (laughs) And just speaking practically, that's how it is. So that's what you have to consider. And because there's less going on, you know, you're not just trying to get a job from somebody who's the same age as you. You're going against people who have been playing 30, 40, 50, 60 years in some cases. You know, the, who already <laughs> are established, have names and experiences and album credits and whatever. So it's that much more difficult. You know, people are getting older, so we're doing, you know, us older guys, I'm, I'm 55 now, and you're mm-hmm. a couple of years older. And, yeah, so they're coming into a market which is swindling, and there's a glut of people that already play the poop out of their instruments. So in that sense, that that's mm-hmm, why I say mm-hmm. you know if you have to ask, maybe that's your own answer that you shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean you sh- that doesn't mean you can't, and that you won't change the way you think about things. But that's my first thought in terms of if somebody wants to be a musician as a performer, really consider t- from that point of view.
0: You also mentioned you kind of uh, touched on this a little bit earlier, Mike, uh, the difference between being a jazz trumpet player versus a lead trumpet player. Um, I have a. A bit of a take on that, but uh, I want before I you know, blur any of that out, I want to hear what your thoughts on that are.
1: Well, first off, with those two positions in a, in a band, nowadays you still need to, well, nowadays maybe you still or now you do, and well, I'm not sure how that works, but you need to be able to do both to some degree, yeah,
2: uh, yeah, because you know.
1: The, Whether it's just they they want something at the end of a tune like a one o'clock jump, where it needs to be kind of a scream thing in the lead part or whatever. Well, if you don't know what you're doing, then then one that that's going to make it tough to sound good in the first place. But you know, people don't just want somebody plays lead. And actually, you know, while I like I said, I I don't have a burning desire to be a great soloist. That's not where I am. I realize that the better I can do something like that, that's going to help my overall playing in general and understanding style and what's going on in a tune. So I think while you don't have Uh to do Uh both sensationally, the ability to do both is really helpful to you, both as a person in terms of your ability to play, but also in terms of whether or not you get called.
0: I sense that the process in colleges of becoming a lead trumpet player is kind of faded a little bit with uh, college Trumpet students, Uh, most, uh, I shouldn't say most, many of the younger players, and I hate to use that term, you put it in that context, uh, many of the newer players, let's go there, uh, are coming out playing jazz and really working on it, but they're working on getting a dark, fluffy sound. Some are even using flugelhorn mouthpieces with a shank cut to fit into a trumpet. They've got the darkest fuzzy tone they can get. And many of these guys rarely venture rarely venture up to the, the top of the staff, and they, I'm putting it real bluntly, they cannot play lead parts. But they they almost turn their nose up at it. Uh, I've been sort of sensing that there are fewer and fewer lead players of the um, next generation coming out, and a lot more combo type jazz player
1: um that might be it might be true i think i think you might find that in different areas of the country or in different big cities you're going to find some different different percentages of who do- who's doing what i think maybe there's uh popularity right now of being a the small uh, jazz soloist i mean think about also again in a practical sense where are you more likely to get hired and and how where are you going to have a greater number of jobs well most of the stuff we as jazz players, let's say right now, is small group stuff where you don't need to be a super powerful lead player.
2: Yeah. There are yeah. there are
1: certainly some big bands running around, yeah. you know. But if let's say, let's say there are 10 really, really busy big bands in, in the Chicago area right now, and there are probably some more than that, but probably not a ton uh-huh. more than that. But you know, I, I can rattle yeah. off 15, 20 really great lead players right away. Who are going to get called before me? Yeah. So, so just the opportunity well, to play—it makes that. more sense. It makes well, okay, thank you. But we'll, we'll let's compare lists and we'll see. <laughs> anyway, but just from a very, again <laughs> practical a practical uh, point of being able to play, being able to make some money, small group jazz is probably a, a certainly a smarter way to think about it. Again, it also depends on your preferences. <laughs> you know, I, I before I,
2: yeah. before I started yeah.
1: the college teaching here. I, I taught private lessons a lot when I first moved here and just stopped really doing that a couple of years ago in my business year, I had fifty five kids that I was teaching, which was way too stinking many. Wow. I did notice that very, very few students, either one wanted to play high and two the ones that wanted to by and large couldn't i mean in in the twenty odd in the twenty uh-huh. odd years that I private taught, I probably only had four students. They have potential to be lead trumpet players in terms of being able to play real powerful Fs and Gs relatively consistently. I mean, it's just, it's either just not an interest or they're just, you know, for whatever the mindset isn't there for that. And maybe that's because they don't listen to the same kind of music. They don't hear it. They don't get inspired by sending the clowns or conquistador or whatever. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's really, it kind of comes down to desire. What do you want to play? What do you want to sound like? What music really gets you going? if any music really gets you going
0: I really admire your sound and your style and playing classical trumpet at that into the mix of the current ideas of what you teach and what you would want to impart to uh, possible younger professional musicians
1: okay well first thank you um it is something that i think actually at least on good days i think it's what i do best in terms of playing trumpet in terms of trying to create a very consistent style sound and one of the most important things i most important things I think is an articulate style that is consistent when you're playing a piece that you don't randomly go back between legato yeah. and detached notes, etc. So, ha- having that idea of style, um, I think by really trying to be a good classical player, um, it really makes you focus on accuracy and intonation, uh, steadiness of tone, really focusing on a good tone. My, my, my first real trumpet teacher in college. That was probably his biggest thing, was really working on sound, getting lots of sound that wasn't strident, that wasn't forced, you know, because it doesn't, in the long run, if you don't, it doesn't matter if you can play high, it doesn't matter if you can play really fast or loud or soft. If your sound is bad, it still sounds bad i'm listening to something yeah. i want it yeah. to sound good doesn't mean it has to be a perfect orchestral sound to play jazz that's not what I'm, that's not my point but if you know if it's a recording where you guys are yeah. cracking notes or his intonation is bad you know who cares so i think it's very important uh. to have your own playing <laughs> to be as solid and as good as possible articulation sound intonation uh time etc so i i think you know if you're not working on things in a classical sense, you're really shorting yourself in terms of certainly if nothing else, but the fundamentals of playing the horn well. And that if you can play things in a classical setting and be in control and do a good job, that's only going to help whatever kind of playing you're doing, whether it's jazz, funk, rock, classical, polka band, whatever.
0: Do you find that uh, being a good classical player helps improve your workload?
1: Well, certainly. Um, I don't do a ton of playing. You and I both play in, in, in my quintet, the brass quintet, and we play the commencement exercises every spring and, and uh, Christmas time for their uh, for, for their graduation ceremonies. Um, I also play with the churches here and there. You do weddings. And, again, if you don't sound good, especially in something like a wedding where you're like, the only thing's going on except for the bride down the aisle. And if you do something that makes people notice, like, what the heck is going on in the balcony, yeah, you know, that that's that's a real quick way to not get called again. You know, you're playing piccolo trumpet most of the time. Um, yeah, and as, and as Garrison yeah. keeler is famous for saying, "Ah, the trumpet." Now, there's an instrument which some someone can really embarrass. Him. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> true. that's great, cool, man. I, I know that my own wedding video. I did not play for my own wedding. I wasn't allowed. <laughs> you start this wedding video. And the first thing is like a view of outside of the church and you hear the trumpet player start playing the, the procession music and he just sucked. It is so cringing, cringeworthy. And <laughs> just because that, it's a hilarious video because of, because of how bad it is. But, you know, that's, that's the guy that doesn't get called again.
0: The total nonsense, but I can't resist what we're talking about weddings. Uh, sure. The trumpet player who played at my wedding was the uh, my very first guest in this podcast, Dave Frolicstein. Yes, uh, yeah. I came out okay on that one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sure ended up playing his way, too, so yeah, right. I'm really glad we were able to touch on the idea of classical trumpet playing as a way of continuing the uh, idea of being a well rounded musician so, and so that well rounded aspect. Is a.
1: Let me interrupt you, let me, let me throw something else along those lines. Um, I, I mentioned this to you again in your Prep meeting, whatever, whatever we would call it, what we had, our our text back and forth. Yeah. and and that is asking, you know, because this also you asked me this, you know, our, how do we prepare for being a professional player today? This is where I think most classical based educations, again, again, I'm being very general, fail us as performers, yeah. and that is the majority of the materials that are used in lessons at again formal training are insufficient because they don't address modern techniques and ranges and styles that is very Mm -hmm. classical music oriented which again is great to be able to do but you know how many things do you study that are are really particularly angular outside of doing triad arpeggios I mean how many exercises do you do in fourths and fifths and sevenths where you focus on it where you where you really have, uh-huh. to have your ear locked in you know whether or not you play a lot of atonal music or not professionally doesn't mean anything the fact that you could play a piece that's decidedly atonal both in terms of uh it's it's harmonic sense but also the kinds of rhythms you get in modern musics if, if you're to learn if you were to learn those things and have to work on them again that's going to improve your skills that much more if you're working out of the arbans book great you can play an f major who who cares you know, how, how does that prepare you for a yeah. funk gig? Where, where, <laughs> how does it prepare you for a funk gig when you're in B and you're playing uh, six, down at eight, 16th rhythms, picking off 16th on the last part of the beat? There's, none of the, there's nothing like that. And that doesn't mean yeah. we have to change yeah. the curriculum totally, but the fact that it most of the time falls short of that, at least for the majority of students. Yes, you're going to have players that are more advanced, but not, you know, I've been at four different colleges and could tell you know that of those four colleges, you know, very few guys could really play anything that was much more difficult than the Haydn and the Canon, the Haydn concerto and the Canon concerto. Uh-huh. I and mean, that Canon was a modern piece. Well, horse crap. You know, it's still a pretty tonal piece. It's got a couple <laughs> modernists. It's got a couple of modernish yeah, things, yeah. but it's it's hardly an advanced piece when you think of what else is around. So I I, I think you know colleges yeah, yeah. can do better with getting folks ready to play but simply making us or taking a more and you don't like the word legit, I'll take another equally bad word, popular music You know curriculum, but really <laughs> making that part of what's going on. I mean, that's what you should know. If you're going to be a performer and you have a music performance yeah. degree from a school, it should not only be primarily a classically f- focused program. Yeah, that's part of it. But so should jazz and so should popular music be. T- teach somebody how to play. In yeah, a that's beach. good. You know, polka band melodies are, are very simple, but you know, it's not just a matter of playing the yeah. tune. Especially if you play in a group that's small, you need to provide something. You need to know how to improvise little ditties or little interjections in between the tune. Otherwise, you just stand there playing the melody, and the group sounds bad. But if you can bring something to it that's not necessarily right yeah. on the page, uh, yeah, that's that's going to make it sound better. And again, that gets you more hired. And polka bands, at least around here, that's it's outside of wedding bands, it's the best paying thing that we do. At least for as a freelance musician.
0: Yeah, you know. It's and you get interesting to, that and, you bring up. Go ahead.
1: I'll say, and you get to wear groovy later host.
0: <laughs> you said it. I didn't. <laughs> but it is interesting you you bring up polka bands because I think that uh, brings to the foreground the idea that if you do want to be a professional musician, that you're going to be doing things that. Uh, It's not about being a big star uh, TV band. It's about being ready and willing and loving to do everything.
1: Yeah. The only thing I won't play are parades.
0: (laughs) Yeah. On every
1: level. There's nothing about a parade that I enjoy as a, as a viewer or as a, as a participant, just not going to do it.
0: Mike, uh, i knew you for a long time before i realized i I just asked you that your doctorate wasn't in jazz trumpet performance your doctorate was in composition so tell us about you know your music publishing where can people find the compositions and arrangements that you do and how do you get that out there
1: okay well the one that's the most um has the most stuff on it would be my own site that's stewmuse.com s-t-e-w the letter m as in mike u-s-e stewmuse.com and i've got uh brass choir brass quintet brass trios uh jazz band pieces uh christmas music traditional stuff um i've always been a very practically oriented uh composer and that i write for what i'm working with when i was directing the brass choir i wrote tons of I wrote tons of music for brass choir and brass ensembles. When I was putting together my big band uh, a decade ago, uh, I ended up having 145 or so charts for my group that I did the arrangements of. Uh, and I've also written music for uh, Lewis University, where we do their commencements, because they say, hey, we like a different piece for the faculty when they come in versus the students. And I've, they've commissioned me to do a couple things there. I also have music uh, published by Where's Music House, W-E-H-R, is Ware's Music House, uh, Cimarron Music and Productions, uh, Oriana Productions, which is in the UK. Um, I, I have music by them and Solid Brass Music, also music published by, as well as One Piece each by the International Horn Society and the, uh, the trumpet equivalent of the, the tuba equivalent of the trumpet guild. I'm not sure what the tuba society real name is. So, so by and large, those are the spots. My website and then I have three or four publishers.
0: Um, are your big band charts uh, readily um, uh, previewable on your website?
1: Um, I think no. The big band stuff I have on my site is for young bands uh, where I did a ser- yeah. a, a sh- okay. short series of pieces. I mean where they're you know they're like two and three parts in each one because i think well young bands uh, young schools don't always have full instrumentation so like you know there's two trombone parts three trumpet parts three saxophone parts and then some things are doubled so anything with some guts i don't actually have published on the big band side those are just kind of in-house the the published big band stuff is for young folks
0: we've talked a lot about your publishing and your music performance and your background um what about the idea of adaptation and survival how would you address that with uh our listeners today
1: well i think certainly today that's one of the most important things we all have to be able to do not just to be well-rounded in what we can do but to realize that at one time in your life one aspect of your performance playing whether it's a classical versus jazz whether it's writing versus performing whether it's teaching at a school you 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 were are likely i think to find that you know, you can't always just do the same thing that you not only have to have a background in a variety of styles and ways of, of presenting those things, but you also have to be willing to see, hey, this isn't working anymore. What is something else that I can do? Where can I apply myself and still uh, be working on things that I enjoy that I think are important that will allow you to be hired or will allow you to be to allow you to earn, earn income from? Um, as is somewhat indi- indicative of my degrees, I have in jazz performance, then then trumpet performance, then composition, and then now professionally, you know, being a jazz band player, uh, working with the Chicago Brass Choir and doing that, and then I said, you know, writing music for my own band. I try I try one to evolve. I try to evolve with what I'm doing, partly because that's practical, partly because also that that's where my interests go. Uh, I I have a lot of interest and want to explore them. But I I think for everybody, even if it's something you don't necessarily have a lot of interest in doing, to be able to do that is important for you to succeed as a performer slash musician today. Be flexible.
0: Do you have any final thoughts if you were talking to a young musician and say, okay, this is the last thing I'm going to say to you uh, before you get out there and consider doing this, and then blah. What would you... What would that be? What would be your parting words to a, a student going out the door uh, from, from you for the last time?
1: Okay, so if this is a student that says that is just dead set on, I'm going to be a musician. I'll say that's great. Um, not to be a party pooper, but be prepared to be disappointed. And then don't uh-huh. give up. Uh-huh. Keep, keep working on it. But, but again, there, there, there is so relatively little work and there are so many people who just are so good at what we do be prepared to have a hard time starting in particular and maybe you'd be prepared to have a hard time forever but if it's what you want to do do it if that means you know playing three nights a month while you work at a job that you don't hate um like i, I work i have a retail job yeah. that i do you know even in addition to my teaching and performing i have an i have a retail job that i do because especially in the summer when school's not in well you still got to, have to you still have to earn money so find something that you know that you can tolerate, yeah, and, yeah. that is not too detrimental to your health. But again, keep trying. If it's what you want to do, if it's really what you want to do. Well, then that that's really what you should be doing, and and you shouldn't let someone say, well, you should never do that because it's hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's hard for everybody. Yeah, it, it maybe may an occasional you know exception, but everybody mm-hmm. struggles. There's just you know it's just not the easiest profession to do
0: and good luck. To this is a wonderful discussion. This is a wonderful discussion. So, uh, Dr. Michael Stewart on the other end of the line here, or the Skype line. Mike, thanks so much for doing this today.
1: It has certainly been my pleasure, and thank you for asking. Uh, thank you also for all the opportunities that you've, you've helped me be able to do over the years. Like I said, I met you on Eddie Barrett's band you know, 22, three years ago. First time we played together, oh and you've been you've been, very, you've been very kind and generous to allow me some opportunities that Frankly, sometimes I didn't think I deserved, um, but I appreciate your support in doing it, and I certainly <laughs> appreciate your general attitude toward the music business and helping other people get going, doing stuff like this podcast, doing stuff like the uh, Shout Section project we talked about earlier where you put all those tracks together. Thanks, man, and good luck to you.
0: Thank you, Mike. Be, be safe, be, uh, enjoy your time with your family, and thanks for doing the show. Thank I have a good day, my man. My pleasure. Well, thanks again to Doc Sewer for doing the show this week. Much wisdom is to be gleaned from that conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show, please hit subscribe and please, please share it around. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Variable D Postulette Ensemble has a Facebook page, and my work can be found on com. Be sure to listen to the archives of this show for more wonderful stories. I hope to be on track for Thursday uploads next week. So, in signing off for this week, I'll reiterate a sign that I saw at the currently dark 3rd Avenue Playhouse in Sturgeon Bay. Be safe. Be kind. Be well. We're all in this together, folks. This is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Up saying... Don't stop the music. Peace.